Thank you very much. It's really great to be here. My connection with you as a church uh, goes back about five years, actually, um, to Phil Harmon, um, whom I met as a, a, clos- a closet charismatic, um, <laughs> hanging out, um, trying to pretend to be a cessationist, um, and wondering what was, what was going on with all this. Uh, I, I was in a band, and we used to feel... And I met then and had interesting discussions. And, uh, and over the years, uh, it's been good to get to know Phil and uh, Rachel Moore and to get to know the children. We've loved having Dan the last few weeks this term in uh, York City Church with us. And uh, it's, it's good to know you. So thanks, Phil. Uh, thanks, Nigel, for inviting me. Uh, it's great to have you here. Uh, great to be here. Sorry, I'm, <laughs> I'm in York mode. That's, uh, that's the thing. Uh, thanks so much for the warm welcome as well. Um, if you treat all your visitors and guests like this, then that's good news. We feel very welcomed. And particularly if you're here and you're someone who wouldn't think of yourself as a Christian or you wouldn't regard yourself, you wouldn't talk about yourself as a Christian, I hope also you found a welcome and that it's been encouraging for you this morning. it's good to be with you and to, to worship with you. Um, City Church, of course, sends its warmest greetings to you. Um, Susanna and I moved to York in 2008 uh, after I'd lived in Brighton since 1996. And so uh, after quite a long time, uh, we, I moved to Brighton, I moved to York with Susanna. We started on staff at City Church. A man called Steve Hurd was then leading the church. And now uh, we've been delighted in the last 18 months to send Steve and Ruth and some other couples from York to plant a new church in Huddersfield. Um, and they're going great guns. So the Ark Church in Huddersfield is up and running. Um, and I now lead City Church with a, a couple of other guys, Chris and Pete, who are elders along with me. So, so greetings from all of them uh, to you all here in Wrexham. It's, it's great to be here. Now, I wonder how many of you were disturbed and distressed by the pictures that have come out from Japan in the last few weeks I uh, find you know, it really, wow, what's, what's going on there? What's, what's all that about? It's shocking, isn't it? The, the video clips that play round and round and round on the news. I remember the morning that it actually happened, waking up, turning on the news and, and just being, wow, this is happening now, real time. And I don't know about you as well, I, I find myself somehow strangely numbed at the same time. I don't know whether you experienced this. I mean, I think you can watch these things happening on the telly and you can almost feel, is this actually really going on now? I know that right now, hundreds or thousands of people are being injured, dying, being, uh, really losing their home, their livelihood. And, and I think you can feel almost this sense of unreality. And perhaps it's due to the fact that we have a lot of Hollywood movies and blockbusters that come out that you, you watch like 2012 or the day after tomorrow. Remember the ones from the 80s, like Volcano and things like that, and Airport, things like, all these kind of things, the disaster movies that you watch, and it somehow makes you numb to it. And then there's a hundred years or more of bloody conflict and world wars and conflicts in the Middle East and the Falklands and Vietnam, things that you see in war movies. And then uh, alongside that, you get video games that are kind of all about death and destruction and killing. And you can somehow get familiar with death. And actually, Charles Spurgeon, Spurgeon was a very famous uh, preacher, uh, lived in the 19th century, led a church called Metro Tabernacle, Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, a big church in, in London in the 1800s. And um, if you're not a Christian, you wouldn't know Spurgeon, possibly. He, he, he said, he was a very famous preacher and Christian leader, Spurgeon said that we've become too familiar with death. 
Because actually death is a foreign invader in God's good world. Death wasn't there in the beginning. Death wasn't part of the original intention and plan of God. It's actually an invader. It's a foreigner. It doesn't belong. And yet we become strangely numbed and over-familiar. And so when we watch things on the news, like the earthquake, the tsunami, when we watch the news and we see conflict in Libya, in the Middle East, things happening in Egypt, it's real, but it's somehow not real, right? Anyone else find they connect with that? Yeah, that's just exactly how it seems. Well, I'm always amazed how timely the word of God is. It's, it's timeless. God's word is timeless. It speaks to every culture and generation. But it's also very timely. And in York this year, we've been working our way through the book of Colossians in the New Testament. And I always say to my church, hey, listen, the Bible's timeless and timely. And you find as you work your way through a, a part of the Bible, a book of the Bible, maybe one chapter in, in detail, things come up and, and connect with the moment somehow in the providence of God and the kindness of God. And the last few weeks, it feels like it's just lifted off to a whole new level with world events. And you find yourself responding to things as a Christian, as a leader, uh, and dealing with not just other realities, heavenly realities maybe, but actual real-time earthly realities. Actually, in, in many ways, I'm indebted to you, just as you are indebted to your communities, to people that you know who possibly wouldn't think of themselves as Christians. You're indebted to them to be able to give an, a reason why these things happen somehow. Not just some trite, learned Pat scripture thing that we learn, and we were keen on quoting, aren't we? Oh, don't worry, all things work together for good. Actually, no, it doesn't quite say that in Romans 8. It says God causes all things to work together for the good. That means the bad stuff God uses somehow to turn for good for you. It doesn't mean he automatically waves a wand and it all switches around. God brings good out of it. So we're indebted to the world. If you were here today and you wouldn't think of yourself as a Christian, or maybe you're struggling with Christianity, I'm indebted to you as someone who gets to stand and to speak on behalf of God, to be, if you like, God's mouthpiece this morning. I'm indebted to you. And there's no quick, easy answer. And anyone who pretends that there are big or quick, easy answers to the big questions in life, really they don't quite know what understand in the way that they should. Here's a question that I heard in the last fortnight. And really, it's, uh, what I want to do this morning is spend the rest of the time uh, in the light of a couple of verses from Colossians unpacking and answering this question. The question I heard was this, is God all loving and not all powerful? Or is he all powerful and just not all loving? And maybe that's a question that you are grappling with at the moment. Maybe it's a question that you're actually scared to tell somebody who you know who's a Christian that you're grappling with because you fear that if you ask that question, you're going to get slammed to being unbelieving. You haven't got faith. Come on, brother, have faith. It's all right. Just have faith. Just believe God. Just take the word as it stands and that's it. Well, actually, questions of suffering, evil, is God all-powerful? All it's a little bit more complex than that. And we do ourselves and the people that we might know who are not Christians a massive disservice by just saying, oh, well, it's just this. Maybe you have been thinking through that question as somebody who isn't a Christian. 
Maybe the fact that disasters happen in the world and suffering and evil is at large in the world makes the idea of God somehow untenable to you, makes it somehow seem like there can't therefore be a God. So I'm going to tackle this question. And I'm going to tackle it in the light of two verses from Colossians chapter 1. Colossians, to give you a little bit of introduction, Colossians is a letter written by uh, a guy called Paul. He was a a Jewish itinerant preacher, to put it in its most basic form. He's a guy who had credentials as a Jewish leader who hated the fact that a load of his fellow countrymen had decided that this guy, who he thought was a sham Messiah, Jesus, and who had died, that they believed that he was truly the Messiah. And he hated that. And he went on a mission to kill and to persecute, to terrorize Christians. And it's on one of those missions, the Bible tells us, that this same man encounters the risen, resurrected Jesus. And it transforms his life. It blows him out of the water. And he goes off and has to spend years away figuring out now well how, now what do i think how do i what, what who are the people of god now what does what does all my history and all that i understand about god how does that now work now if this jesus really is messiah and lord what does that look like and so he has this whole this whole transformation in fact it's probably too small and too narrow a word to call it a conversion he probably actually understood that Jesus, who he had persecuted and hated, actually was the fulfillment of all his hopes and dreams for the nation of Israel, the Messiah. So he goes away and he rethinks this whole thing. And then throughout the course of his ministry, he travels throughout uh, the, the Mediterranean world, preaching, planting churches, preaching the death and the resurrection of Jesus, establishing communities, churches, and then visiting again or writing letters to encourage and to build up churches in the faith. Now, Interestingly enough, Colossae, the one church that he writes to, it's where we get the letter Colossians in the New Testament. He's writing to them from prison. The guy's in the clink. The guy's in jail. He's been locked away for preaching. He's been put in the slammer for being a Christian. I mean, it's ironic, isn't it? This very guy who was putting Christians in jail because of their preaching now himself finds that he's in jail because of his faith and his preaching. And so he writes a letter to this raw, young new group of converts in Colossae in ancient Greece under the shadow of a Roman empire. And he writes an incredible letter. It's actually what we might call a subversive tract. It undermines the authority and the teaching and the ideas, the the worldview of the Roman empire. And so that's how we have to understand maybe the whole of Colossians. And we're going to drill into a couple of verses in Colossians 1 this morning. The the words will appear on the screen in a minute, um, and uh, I'll read them and then pray and get on with it. Um, But here's, here's a little disclaimer before we do that. The Bible doesn't give you all the answers that you want. It doesn't give you all the answers you want. never says it will. The Bible gives you all the answers that you need. And that's a very, very different thing. You see, you can turn to the the pages of the Bible and you could probably justify about anything that you want to, to be fair. But the right attitude of coming to the Bible is to say, I am looking to this word to inform me. I don't come to the Bible with my own theological agenda, with my own particular view of the world, with my own particular thoughts about what God is like. I humble myself and come to the Scriptures and allow them to address me. And one of the most dangerous comments 
that can be made or can be heard from the lips of a Christian or anybody, in fact, but particularly Christians, is, well, I like to think of God like... To me, Jesus is... We must come to the Bible and allow it to address us. We need to learn to come not with our 21st century post-enlightenment, post-modern spectacles on, reading it through Western eyes. We actually need to learn how to read it through different glasses at times, to understand cultures, to understand worldviews, to understand the whole scope of Scripture, God's big picture and narrative. And as we do that, we discover not the answers that we want, quick, easy things to stick in our pockets, like a, a, a word that's original. Here, do you want a word that's original? Here's a sweet. Yeah, stick them out. Oh, you look a bit sour. Here, have a word that's original. Here, here's a verse, Romans 8, 28. There you go. There's one for you, one for you. Excellent. Just woo, wheel it out. There it is. Actually, you get a sense of this big picture, this grand scheme of God's, and how Jesus isn't just some new kid on the block some new emergence, some new religion that appeared because, well, Judaism failed and so God's got it wrong and so now Jesus appears and does this brand new thing and it's nothing to do. Actually, no, we have to understand Jesus fulfills all of the old. It's one continuous seam through. Not, well, that was the old and we don't really read the Old Testament because, well, that was about them and that was all about getting saved by works. Well, actually, wrong. Israel was saved by grace through the Exodus, the blood of the Lamb through the Red Sea. It's like a baptism, like a death and a resurrection into the promised land. It was grace. God did it. They didn't ask for it. They didn't behave themselves. And so actually we find that some of the nice, easy things that we set up, the nice distinctions that we make between, well, law of the Old Testament and grace and the new, actually they don't really hold water, actually. But I digress. I digress. How long have we got? Three hours, did you say? Um, When we come with a genuine, humble, searching heart, whether or not we would think of ourselves as Christians or not, we discover the Bible speaking to us and giving the answers that we need to hear. So, if we can have the words up, it would be lovely. I like this. Um, There we go. It's very nice. It's much more high-tech than we have. We do have a projector. We're not in OHP land anymore, which is good. Um, But that's very, very nice. There we go. So, this is Colossians 1, 19-20. Paul says, for in him, that's Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Do you mind if I just pray for a moment? Lord, we thank you so much that all that we can know about you, all that we do know about you is because you have kindly and generously chosen to make it known. And whether we're brand new as Christians or old veterans, whether we are just starting or we've got a lot of experience, whether we uh, wouldn't even think of ourselves as Christians, whether we think we're lapsed Christians, whether we are confident and buoyant in our faith right now, we do ask, Holy Spirit, will you take this word of God And would you bring it to life in our hearts? And even as Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, would you cause this word to to be incarnated in our lives, Lord? Not just as things that we know in our minds, but things that are worked out and lived out in our day-to-day existence together. In Jesus' name we ask. 
Amen. So I want to begin then unpacking this, these two verses, and you can keep them up. Yeah, great. Um, I want to begin in a slightly strange place. I want to begin by talking to you about the pain of forgiving. I like to think for a moment. Now, I know it's Sunday morning, and the clocks went forward, and uh, you, you, you're probably slightly weary. My fellow elder, Pete in York, uh, was at his brother's wedding yesterday, um, and then his train got cancelled, and they weren't getting back into York until about 3.30 this morning, uh, and he's preaching as well, uh, probably about now, in fact. Uh, so he got the short straw big time. Um, but maybe you're not quite there in terms of thinking, but I like to try and think. And, and I think for some of you, this will be very, very easy for some of you, this will be very, very on the surface. For some of you, you might need to dig a little bit deeper. But what I'd like you to do is to think about a relationship of some sort that you were in, perhaps a marriage, perhaps uh, some kind of business arrangement, perhaps uh, a neighbor, a friend, a colleague, an employee, an employer, a relationship that went sour in some way, a relationship that went really down the tube somehow, and, and in particular where you were the victim where you were the person that got the flack. You were the person who got shot down, kind of. All right, I like to think about that. Is there, can you think? Just give me a, a nod. Just are you are we there? Mm-hmm. You don't have to live very long, actually, to experience this kind of thing. Maybe it was a teacher, even. Right? Now, I expect that the feelings of hurt and betrayal, the feelings of anxiety, of disappointment, uh, of anger, of bitterness. I expect they ebbed and they flowed a little bit throughout the period uh, while this thing was happening. Sometimes it would be right up in your face. Ah! Other times maybe it was just more of a general background ambience to life that followed you wherever you went as this relationship that you were in soured and deteriorated and was fractured in some kind of way. Now, assuming that you've all been in that place somehow, on some, some place on the scale, I want you to think again now about what would need to, if it's going on now, or what did actually happen in order for that relationship somehow to be put right, in order for that particular relationship to be restored or fixed in some way. Thinking about that? Someone has to say sorry, right? Someone has to humble him or herself. Someone has to take a step towards. Somebody has to say, I'm going for reconciliation here. Otherwise, this thing cannot move on. This thing can't go anywhere. We're, we're stuck here. Now, that process is never easy. There might be tears. There might be fisticuffs. There might be handbags at noon. It could be scratching, it could be emails, ugh, but it's got to get to that point before it gets better, right? You understand that? Somebody has to go for reconciliation somehow. Now, what about this question? Who do you think then, if that is what has to happen, when there's a soured relationship, when there's a broken relationship, who has the power? Who holds the power in that kind of situation to reconcile or to put right the relationship. You might think, which is the intuitive thing to think, well, the person who hurt me, of course, the perpetrator, 
They got it wrong. They blew it. They betrayed me. They gossiped. They started a rumor about me. They broke faith. They broke covenant. They cheated on me. They made all those lies. They heard what I said and went online and blogged like crazy about it. (laughs) They have got to come. When they say sorry, then that's when I deal with it. That's the person with the power. That's who is in the driving seat with this whole deal. And that's intuitive to think like that, isn't it? Right? We think, yeah, that's what's got to happen for reconciliation. When they come, then it'll all be all right. Well, actually, that's not correct. You see, the person with all the power to reconcile and to restore a broken relationship when it happens is the person who is the victim. And here's why. Because as a perpetrator, you can beg for forgiveness. You can crawl across broken glass. You can make all kinds of promises and assurances about what will happen in the future now, about how future dealings with me will carry on, about what I will be like towards you, about my faithfulness, about my behavior. You can make all kinds of promises. But unless somebody says, I forgive you, that relationship remains broken, fractured, apart. So all the power lies with the victim. You can say, no, I will never forgive you, and the relationship remains broken. You can say, yes, I I do forgive you, and the relationship gets healed, fixed, restored. Forgiveness means choosing not to exercise your power in vengeance. It means choosing not to lash out at the person who wounded you. It means choosing to treat that person as though it never actually happened. We talked earlier on, there's the word on the screen, remember my sins no more. God has not got selective amnesia, by the way. He chooses to not remember. He chooses not to bring to mind what has happened previously. That's what forgiveness is like. Reconciliation is like. You effectively inflict pain on yourself when you forgive someone. You say, I will not allow what happened. I will not pour out my anger. I will not vent my spleen on you in hatred or gossip or uh, passive revenge, standing back and not treating you in a, in a nice way, but just not treating you at all. I just ignore you. Passive revenge. I inflict the pain on myself because I choose to treat you as though that never happened. And that's why forgiveness is so difficult, friends. That's why forgiveness is so hard, because it means choosing to suffer yourself. It means bringing on yourself pain and anguish, and not venting that on the person who has wronged you. Forgiveness, in a very real way, is a form of suffering. Now, here's the point. Forgiveness then becomes an act of amazing, incredible, profound love. It's not just a quick, easy, oh, it's done. It's an act of love because you have to live with the pain heartache, the despair. Every time that 
thing surges up in you, you have to, no, I choose not to act on that. Suffering, it's painful, it's difficult. It's not just something you stroll around, oh yeah, it's easy to say, oh, I forgive you, but in your heart, and maybe that spills out in other things. You you, You know, actually, when you've forgiven somebody because you can talk about what they did and it doesn't sting any longer. It doesn't hurt anymore. You can talk about them and say, well, yeah, because you recognize actually they're weak like me. Forgiveness, the most profound act of love, because it's inflicting pain and suffering on yourself when somebody else hurts you. So here's what I want to suggest to you this morning. The place where love and power meet is in reconciliation. It's in forgiveness. That's where love and power come together. And therefore, the place where ultimate love and ultimate power come together is at the cross where Christ died. The place where an all-loving, all-powerful God is seen most clearly is at the cross as Jesus died. How does that work? What does that look like? What we get to see at the cross is a cosmic example of costly reconciliation. That's what we see at the cross. It's the coming together of ultimate power and ultimate love. We see the man, Christ Jesus, in whom was dwelling all the fullness of God, ultimate power, ultimate love, not lashing out, not calling down vengeance upon his persecutors, not calling down vengeance and legions of angels, but saying instead, Father, forgive them. The place where you most clearly see an all-loving, all-powerful God at work is on the cross. That's where you look to find the answers. When the question arises, the anguished question, is he either all-loving and not all-powerful, or all-powerful and not all-loving, we don't have to go fiddling around, poking around for some giant out there somewhere answer, cosmos science answer. We go to the cross, we say, here, that's how you see. That's how you know. Because this is not just a tragic accident. This is not just something that went wrong. Jesus, the, the, the humanitarian campaigner, the, the, the great preacher, the good man, the rabbi, the, the teacher who tragically died ahead of time. You know, he was a bit like Gandhi, wasn't he? But only a different idea about God. Uh, here he is, and what a shame he died. He was such a good man. Think how much good he could have done if he'd carried on living. Now we see the God man. We see one fully human and yet in whom dwells the fullness of God. Choosing to inflict on himself suffering, evil, the fracturedness and brokenness and dissonance of evil, all the injustice in the world, every power of darkness and hell and unforgiveness, taking it on himself, Absorbing it and extinguishing its power. Now, these two verses are spiritual semtex. 
plastic explosive in the spiritual sense. Dynamite. In fact, one of the Bible words for power is dunamis. It means dynamite. God's word is dynamite. Explosive. You see, you, you've, maybe, you've maybe lived as a Christian, maybe even if you're not a Christian, you've maybe lived with this idea that, well, here's what the cross means. It means Jesus died for my sins. Jesus died for my forgiveness. Jesus died to cleanse my conscience. Jesus died to buy me an eternal life in a, in a dress, white, with kind of Gucci slippers and a, and a harp, uh, floating around clouds, playing eternal Matt Redden songs. It's more like hell, to be honest. Um, sorry. <laughs> Except in my hat. But what do we see here? Look. In him, all the fullness of God pleased to dwell, and through him, to reconcile to himself, tapanta is the Greek words, all things. There's something cosmic going on in these verses. There's something bigger than you and I and a cleansed conscience. There's something broader and more majestic and outrageous in scope than just, well, I, I, I get to now clap my hands and sing songs and, and dance up and down on a Sunday. There's something more glorious and wide-reaching than singing songs about forgiveness. As glorious as that is, and please don't hear what I'm not saying, as glorious as that is, there is something bigger happening here. In Jesus Christ, God, the all-powerful creator, became part of creation. The God we worship took on flesh and blood. Or, or did you think that in eternity past there was a, a 30-year-old Mediterranean dude with a beard called Jesus the man? No, the pre-existent God, the second person of the Trinity who existed in eternity past at the incarnation became identified with Jesus the man, Jesus the Messiah. He took on himself, what he didn't previously have. He entered the fray, not as an alien, an outsider, some kind of anomaly. He entered the fray as part of creation. You see, God has not acted from heaven, reaching in somehow, like those chemists wear those big gloves, you know, they reach into contaminated containers. Oh, stick my hands in here, it's a bit dirty. Fiddle around with it from outside, protected, and then, whoa, done, fixed. God took on flesh and blood. He became the God-man. He became more than God when he took on flesh because he took on what he had never had. And he did that in order to suffer and to take on himself the brokenness of creation as part of it in order to reconcile all things to himself. You see, that's God's big intent and purpose it's not to whisk you away one day it's not oh it doesn't matter we don't this this world earth creation doesn't really matter that much because hey great we go to heaven woohoo and then well what's heaven going to be like and well yes answer on a postcard please uh, have your best guess um you know all kinds of things i've heard all sorts of fanciful ideas about heaven that the point actually god's intent in reconciling all things to himself in Christ, is not to populate heaven with souls. It's to populate earth with heaven. 
Do you understand that 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 is God's intention? How does the Bible begin? A garden, creation, with man, Adam, dwelling in the garden, with God walking in the garden, and and a commission, spread out, multiply, fill the earth. You know why God said that? So that the earth would be filled with the knowledge of his glory, because Adam is the image of God, the true image bearer of God who God said, fill the earth. So everywhere there would be God's image shone forth in his creation, the pinnacle of his creation, Adam, humankind, man, fill the earth. In Colossians 1.15, Paul says this, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That's not a statement about his divinity. That's a statement of his full humanity. Because the image of God was Adam, creation, the first creation. Jesus is now the one who really fulfills the purpose and what God intended for humanity in himself to reign and to govern creation. But he does so as the God-man, the one in whom is the fullness of God, fulfilling God's vocation for people and for God. So Jesus Christ, now enthroned and ascended on high, is the one who is ruling and reigning sovereignly over all things and bringing all things, all creation, to its appointed climax, which is to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Heaven and earth interlocking and interfacing beautifully and finally. That's God's intent. When you make the cross, when you make the gospel about your personal forgiveness and your personal conscience being cleansed, you shrink it down to a massive, you shrink a massive story down to a story about me. You, you, you shrink this thing down to a story that's got me at the center. Now, praise God, you are in the story, but it's much, much bigger. It's much, 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 much more glorious. It's about the restoration of everything. It's about God fixing all the effects of sin and death and evil in this broken, fractured creation, bringing it together, restoring it, renewing it. And how does it end in Revelation 21? The garden city. God coming down, the city coming down, a new creation. John says, I saw new heavens and new earth. It's not floating around in a bizarre, nebulous, disembodied, post-mortem state called heaven. It's about God dwelling in his good creation with his people without sin and sickness in a restored earth. That's what you're destined for, brothers and sisters. That's what God is doing. That's his big picture. You see, when we only make the gospel about getting to heaven... You you cut the legs off any answers that you've got to explain why things go wrong in the world. You cut the legs off any hope that you might give to me. Well, it doesn't matter. Oh, thousands of people died in the tsunami. Do you want to go to heaven? Well, they're saying, well, no, actually. In fact, they're more godly in a sense because they understand this isn't right. Something's wrong. Something's fractured. Something's broken. What is God doing about this? You say there's this great God who created the earth and the universe in six days and then rested. Well, what's going on? A gospel that just posits the idea that it doesn't really matter what goes on. We just escape it in the end. Mm. No, people go, don't know about that. Jesus enters the fray. God as man, the God-man, 
in order to take on himself evil suffering. To absorb its power, its effects on himself to accomplish not just person-to-person reconciliation or even person-to-divine reconciliation, but the reconciliation of all things in earth or in heaven. So what we find then in answer to the question, is God a God who is all-loving and not all-powerful? Or is he all-powerful and not all-loving? We point to the cross and we say he is both and, not either or. It's not a question of either or, it's a matter of both and. It's not what hasn't God done, it's what has he already done now. See, history came to a climax at the cross. History came to its climax when Jesus died on the cross. Because he died as like the pinnacle of the first broken creation, taking it all on himself and then raised to life as the firstborn from the dead. As the same chapter in Colossians says, the first of new creation, resurrection life. New creation has begun. Oh, we know it, don't we? I am a new creation. No more in condemnation, tambourine. We sing it. Oh, isn't that wonderful? Yes, I'm a new creation in Christ. But but we don't often then link the dots and realize that what that means is that I'm joined to a head, Christ, who is the firstborn, who is sovereign over all things. And actually, I have the hope of a new body and it's new creation macro, not new creation micro. It's not just like, well, okay, well, I'm just an old sinner on my way to heaven. No, no, no. It's the power of the age to come flooding in, breaking in now in your life, making you new so that you live as a foretaste for other people to see of what new heavens and new earth look like. You know, that's your vocation as a Christian. It's not to say, don't worry about this. We've got that. It's to say, no, God cares about this. And because he cares about it, I'm going to show you how to live a truly human life in God's good creation. That's a foretaste of what that new creation will actually look like, taste like, be like. That's what you're called to as a church. It's what we're called to as Christians, is to be a new humanity. You're not just religious people. If you are joined to Christ as the head... You are a brand new humanity in him. Once in Adam, now in Christ. Once under that head, now under this head, joined to him. Actual fact, it's not so much about your individual sins as it is who you're in. Once you were in Adam and you just lived in Adam because that's who you were in, he was your head. Now in Christ, new creation, new life, new humanity and you live very very different because you are now in this new thing and you radiate an image forth the true glory of God because it's being renewed and restored in you if you're in Christ it's about showing what it really means to be human what it really means to be new creation so we see at the cross then Essentially, God coming as the victim with all the power to lash out, taking it on himself in order to accomplish reconciliation. 
not separate from creation, but within creation to demonstrate his intention and, and his heart to not do away with creation, but to renew and to restore all things, to reconcile all things. Look, if you've got no God at all, you've got no one to be mad at when things happen in the world. Who, who have you got to be cross with? Rwanda, genocide, Kosovo, the Holocaust, wars, tsunamis, earthquakes, floods. Urgh, oh, hang on. <laughs> Don't believe in anyone. Oh, well. You can't be mad at anyone. Stuff happens. Get over it. Deal with it. You can't be morally outraged when there's no God. Why, why should you be? The rich eat the poor. The strong eat the weak. So what? Natural disasters happen. Blah. That's Brian Cox. Why? He's the one who says, that, you know, he's got the ideas about the universe. With a God of power, but not of love. Well, you can be mad. You can be really cross. But why would you expect anything good from a God of power, but not of love? Why would you think that he would do anything good if he's all-powerful but not all-loving? What if you've got a God of, who's all-loving but not all-powerful? Well, in that case, you, you can't be mad. You can be frustrated. And I think, actually, that's how so many of us as Christians live. God, this all-loving God, if only he was truly sovereign, if only he truly reigned over all things, if only he was powerful, instead, well, we've got to run around really busy, he needs help. God's all loving. Look, look how loving God is. See, he's really loving. So oh, well, I'm sorry he can't really help you with this. He's not, oh, look, he's all loving. And, you know, all this fuss and stuff. He's not really all powerful. Oh, you live with regrets when things go wrong, but you can't be mad. If only God was all powerful as well as all loving. With a God who is just the same as creation. With a God who is just inseparable from it you know eastern stuff everything is god god is everything that's the way it works big merry-go-round oh it's all good don't tread on a slug you'll come back as a you know something worse well that's the way it is isn't it it's karma suffering is just that's how it what goes around comes around you can't be mad at a god who is just in everything but with jesus with the God-man, with the one in whom dwells all the fullness of God, you have one who chose to take on flesh, one who entered into God's good creation as part of it in order to suffer and die, in order to be broken, to put an end to all brokenness, in order to suffer, in order to put an end to all final suffering he entered in in order to reconcile all things in earth and on heaven to himself. Maybe you're still not convinced. Maybe you're still someone who's not, you might not be a Christian and you're thinking, well, I still was all right to say all that. How do, how do I know? It's two scenes from Jesus' life. Actually, it's cheating a little bit. One from his life in the flesh, and then the other from his resurrected life in new creation, right? First is this, John's Gospel. Jesus is hanging out, <laughs> as I guess he did, when messengers come and say, Jesus, your good friend Lazarus is really, really badly ill. It's not looking good. You've got to come. 
His sisters, Mary and Martha, they're saying, Jesus, come, you've, you've got to come. Please come, we, we, we need you. And, and to cut a long story short, in, in John 11, Jesus rocks up too late and Lazarus is dead and he's in the tomb. And the sisters are mad. They are cross. They're not happy. One of them says, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died, which is the natural reaction, right? That's what you would think, yeah? We asked you to come. Urgh! If you had only been here, Jesus, he wouldn't, he'd be still alive and with us. Now, pay attention. Do you recognize the question? It's just in a slightly different way. Jesus, are you all loving but not all powerful? Or are you all powerful and not all loving? If you had been here, power. But, but, but you, and you have got power, but you weren't here. So what about your love? It's a very similar question. By that point, mourners are us have turned up as well. Eastern context, mourners gathering, family, friends, wailing, all this going on. And it's into that context that John, the gospel writer, chooses to pen the shortest verse in the whole Bible. It's into that context that you think, John, you missed your chance. Here's this stuff going on, this big question. If you had been here, why weren't you here? And what does John choose to say about Jesus' reaction? How does he set, how does he describe Jesus' reaction? Two words. Jesus wept. Faced with the death of his dear friend Lazarus, Jesus, the God-man, shed tears of grief. Jesus wept with compassion. Jesus wept with regret. Jesus, the pre-existent son, through whom all creation came into being, the agent of creation, wept at the horror of death's foreign invasion into God's good creation. Jesus, the Redeemer, wept in anticipation of what he himself would shortly endure in order to reverse the effects of sin and death and bring about reconciliation and renewal for all things. And then this same Jesus spoke. Spoke with the words, perhaps, that spoke creation into being in the first place. In a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And I don't know whether they had a drum roll or what. But out comes Lazarus. I want to say alive and kicking, but he probably would be alive and shuffling with stuff around him, maybe. What's going on there? Jesus is giving a phenomenal foretaste of what he will do on a glorious cosmos-wide scale. New creation, resurrection life, breaking in even in the midst of the current creation. New life and wholeness and a, a res- well, kind of foreshadowing of resurrection now in this life. Jesus didn't say, never mind, he'll be in heaven Jesus speaks the creative initiative of God, speaks. 
when Lazarus comes out. It's a foretaste. It's a glimpse. It's a taster of what will happen on a cosmos-wide scale when Jesus restores everything, restores all things. It's glorious. The next scene is in Revelation 21, and this presupposes the the resurrection. So if you've got questions about the resurrection, I'm I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, But please come with me, because this this is a vision that, that John, who was one of Jesus' good buddies, saw while he was actually imprisoned on an island called Patmos. It's in the book of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible. And right at the very end, it's one of the very last scenes of the Bible, John records this. He says, I saw new heavens and a new earth. He says this, he hears Jesus saying, I wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The ascended, glorified Jesus. So you have the Jesus, the God-man, weeping at the invasion of death, the foreign breaking in of a, of a horrible, insidious power in God's good creation, weeping over the loss of a friend, weeping, maybe expecting what is to come, and then calling forth this new life and speaking life as a demonstration of the, the power of resurrection, breaking in even now, this new thing, this new age, breaking in in the present. And then we find him in thrones on the other side of the cross, ascended, sitting on the throne, the God-man, the true Adam, the one with all authority and power, saying, I will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Friends, we have a weeping saviour who has become a comforting conqueror. And when we deal with questions of, is he all loving and all, or, or, all powerful, or is it the other way around? Is he all powerful but not all loving? We point people to a God who took on flesh, who took on creation to himself, who died on a cross, who wept over brokenness, and now has taken it on, has beaten it, has triumphed over death and the powers of evil by his resurrection, and now is enthroned as the first of a new creation. And we say, there is hope. There is a hope. There is more than just a pie in the sky when you die, Christianity. There is more of a, oh, well, never mind. Stuff happens, get over it. There is more than just a, isn't that terrible? Let me tell you about how you can float around in the cloud. There is resurrection, hope, and life. And that is what we point people to. That is what we demonstrate in our words and in our actions and in our lives. He is alive. He reigns. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes in the new heavens and the new earth. Not in a floaty, disembodied bliss. In a restored creation. So what do we do with this knowledge? How do you respond to that? Perhaps, and this might go for a lot of you, what you've heard this morning has has made you think, what? maybe it's been a bit of a paradigm shift for you that I I, I thought this but now how do you respond maybe as someone who wouldn't think of themselves as a Christian you're thinking I uh, right 
Maybe this is just a bit strange for you. He thought, well, I thought I understood that you know, Jesus died on the cross, we all go to heaven. <laughs> How do you respond? If you just store this kind of stuff in, in the biological hard drive called your brain, and then you keep it there, and it's just another one of those things that you know, that you can wheel out, you know, I've studied it, I've got my degree in this, but also I know these things. The best response to a God like this, to an all-powerful and all-loving God who gave himself at the cross, not just to reconcile you to himself, but to reconcile all things to himself, is to give him the allegiance of your heart. It's not just to have God as first. You can have God first, and then you can have adultery second, and you can have drunkenness third, you can have pornography fourth. You can have, God first doesn't mean too much sometimes. What you want is God center, from which all other things spring. Jesus isn't looking for your good works. He's looking for the obedience of your heart. He's looking for you to trust him and out of a deep heart allegiance to him, live under his lordship and headship. Now look, I know, I know how this sounds. I understand that if you're not a Christian, you think, I knew it, I knew it. Maybe you've just been waiting for this moment. You've been on tenterhooks the whole meeting. You're thinking, sooner or later, some jerk's going to stand up and say, right, and now, now you need to come down to the front and you need to this and you need to that and you need to, and you need to repent of your sin and you need to this and that and all the other and I'm going to sit here and no, I'm not going. I'm not going to do it. I'm not, I'm, no, I'm not. Because you've got a trust deficit that's, that's a mile wide because, well, leaders and rulers, you, you don't trust them, do you? Because they get things wrong and they screw things up and they hike up your tuition fees and they put pounds on your petrol fill and your food bills and your council tax and all these other things and they make life difficult and they spend your tax money on duck houses and you know, they make these broad, big promises about big society but then they never deliver and I'm sick and I'm cynical and I'm there. And plus I had a parents who abused me and didn't didn't treat me nicely, they didn't love me, they were just authoritarian and, and I've had people all my life who've just abused me and people in authority and teachers and everything and it's just, ah, I don't trust authority, I won't give my heart leaders, I'll keep it for myself. But look again at the cross. What, what do you see at the cross? That prophetic word earlier on, see Jesus, yeah. What do you see in Jesus? You, you see the true God doesn't demand your blood in order for you to be reconciled. He doesn't. He gave up his own blood for you to be reconciled. And that's very, very different. The true king is not like Colonel Gaddafi, you'll be pleased to hear. Or Idi Amin, or, or Barack Obama, or David Cameron. He's not like any kind of world ruler. He doesn't kill his own, doesn't murder his own in order to subjugate them and make sure that they tow the line. Neither does he deal with people who do in the same kind of way, I might add. He doesn't assert his authority in a display of anger, in a fit of violence. He displays his authority 
by allowing himself to be murdered in order to break the cycle of violence and retaliation and vengeance. The true Lord embraces the cross. And now in doing so, check this out, he, he subverts, turns upside down the very power and authority symbol of the Roman Empire. That's, that's the remarkable thing. Another remarkable thing. You see, you rock up in a Roman town or a, a town that's part of the Roman Empire like Colossae, and this, maybe this is the main road here, and you would walk in and there would be crucifixes with people dying on them or dead on them. And what does that say to you? That says Rome is God. Rome is Lord. If you mess with us, that happens. So don't even think about it. So Jesus doesn't come with a sword and an army, with military might. He doesn't come asserting his power and his, his position with muscle. Instead, he embraces that, the cross. And he demonstrates what true lordship and true kingship and true power and true authority alike by taking on himself violence and brokenness in order to restore all things. It's a cosmic example of costly giving love. It turns violence and oppression on its head. That's the Christian God. That's the Christian King. That's the Christian Lord. It's unlike any other kind of king, any other kind of lord. He's not like the lords and the kings and the rulers that we see around us. Not one who demands and bullies and harries and hassles and intimidates. He's one who woos you with self-giving love. And you know what you find is when you give the allegiance of your heart to this Jesus, you become a part of his intention to restore creation. You don't just get to sit there, well, I've got my golden ticket. Thank you very much, Lord. And I'll worship you forever for my golden ticket. I'll worship you forever on Sunday, but on Monday I'll bitch about my colleague. On Tuesday I'll be aggressive with my children. On Wednesday, I won't go to small group and I'll gossip about them instead. On Friday, I'll get drunk. On Saturday, well, I'll I'll just have an argument with my husband about what we're going to do today. And then on Sunday, thank you, Lord, for my golden ticket again. (laughs) Do you know that's how we sometimes we see worship like that? Be very careful, brothers and sisters. Because to worship like that, without worship like that, friendship, reconciliation, is to actually say, well, the resurrection never happened. Now, that sounds, that sounds big, doesn't it? But it's to say, I'm still in the old creation. When you say, I love God with all my heart, hallelujah, worship, 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 but then despise your brother or sister, you're actually living like the old creation now, when really you're new creation. The Bible never says, be what you ain't. It says, be what you are, because you're joined to a head and that's what a watching world often finds unbelievable. It's not so much the claims that we have. It's not so much what we say about Jesus. It's not so much what we believe about the Bible. 
It's more the fact that we make these claims. We talk about new creation, resurrection, new life, wholeness, justice, truth, beauty, peace, shalom. Actually, the Bible word for peace it doesn't just mean absence of conflict. It means wholeness, wellness, reconciliation and restoration. It's a holistic thing. And when we live as though all that matters is Sunday and the rest of the week we just carry on and it doesn't matter, that's what the world finds unbelievable. What I want to urge you this morning, this afternoon, is to be reconciled. This is where it all this is where the rubber hits the road for you. Because if God is reconciling all or has reconciled all things to himself through Christ, making peace by the blood of his cross, and if you are in him, joined to him as Ahead. If you are, as Paul will go on to say, now reconciled, if you are the new humanity in Christ, then there is a big call on your life to be someone who finds and pursues and goes for the Lazarus moments in every situation you find yourself in. Every day you will be presented with the opportunity to work for new creation or against new creation. Every day you go to work surrounded by people who wouldn't call themselves Christians, wouldn't have any kind of religious idea at all. You have the opportunity to shine forth new creation or not. So let me urge you to be someone who, as now reconciled, is bringing that new creation, that shalom, into every single area of your life, into your marriage. Be reconciled. Reconciliation is not just some nice optional extra when you're a Christian. It's at the heart of the whole purpose and plan of God. And when you fail to or refuse to be reconciled, when you say, I will not I will not enter into that. When you say, well, I won't serve those people because they do that. I'll just stay aloof. I'll preach the gospel to them now and again, blah, 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 and then carry on and just do my... When you don't serve and create and love and nourish and encourage and speak healing and health and wholeness into people's lives, you say the resurrection doesn't count. New creation isn't breaking into the world now since the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. What matters is me making it. Or maybe it's sin management. That's a classic, isn't it? And we love that as Christians. I've got to try my life. Just try not to sin. <laughs> try and be good. Try and keep my nose clean. I saw a t-shirt in Brighton that said, look busy, Jesus is coming. <laughs> well, that's how so many Christians live. The sum total of their Christian life is trying not to sin. Trying to toe the Christian line. Wearing the right clothes, listening to the right CDs, being on time or early for church, going to the prayer meeting, attending small group, being kind, smiling. And it can all be trying not to sin. And you see, the point is that it's not about trying not to sin. It's about living the life of the future now in the present by the power of the Spirit. 
That's the Christian life, brothers and sisters. That's what it's about. It's the power, Hebrews says, it's tasting now of the power of the age to come. You now are reconciled, joined to Christ, so you now live the life of the future in a community together. Not just individual Christians, well, I do my thing, he does. No, together you are shining forth to Wrexham, to the borderlands. This is what new heavens and new earth looks like. When God gave Moses the law for Israel, the point was this. When they entered into the land that God would give them as an inheritance, this is how they live. This is what they're to do. This is how they're to be. Because they're meant to shine forth. This is what it looks like to be in relationship with the the good creator, God, the one true God, the God of all the worlds. Moses goes up a mountain, gets tablets, comes down, gives them the law. Jesus, after his resurrection, stands on a mountain with his disciples, enters into heaven, sends the Holy Spirit. We don't live legalistic, trying not to sin lives. We live spirit-empowered, future-age, now lives. And that's what healing actually is all about. It's not a question of, is it in the atonement or not? By his stripes we are healed. Oh, what does that mean? Actually, it's new creation breaking in now. It's resurrection life now. It's a great little verse in a John 1. Jesus is talking to Nathaniel and he says, I saw, when I, I saw you underneath the fig tree and Nathaniel's like, whoa, blimey. And Jesus says, well, you're amazed at that. I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What does he mean? Is he just, what's that? Like, God, man, you'll see some things. He's referring to Genesis. He's referring to Bethel. He's referring to Jacob's dream where Jacob sleeps and sees heaven opened and a ladder and angels going up and down and God's standing above the ladder. And Jacob wakes up and goes, whoa, this was God's house. And I didn't even realize it. This was the place where heaven and earth meet and connect and intersect. And I was ignorant of it. Oh, my word. So he builds the altar and he worships. Jesus says, now where I am, Where I am is the place where heaven and earth intersect, interface, overlap, interconnect. It's where I am. You're going to see such things happening because now I'm the place. It's not that place. It's not that temple. It's not that mountain. It's not this temple in Jerusalem. It's me. It's where I am. The future age is going to break out. Resurrection power will start to spill out all over the place in people being healed, in the the lame being healed, in people unclean being restored, the poor and the Gentiles being brought in to worship Israel's God. That's where it's happening, where I am. And if you are a Christian, then where you are is where he is. Do you get it? He's the head You're joined to him. You have become the interface of heaven and earth now in Wrexham in March 2011. God breaking out in and among his people here because you're joined to him. It's God's purposes incarnated where you are right now. That's a remarkable thing. It's a high calling. It's a massive privilege. So be reconciled then to each other. Love one another. Love God. 
Love your class, your teacher, your husband who's not a believer. Don't constantly be telling them what they're not. Don't be people blaming the world for what they should be. Be people who are bringing the presence of God, the wholeness, reconciliation, shalom of God into all of your life as people where God has taken up his residence and is filling the world with his glory. I think I'm done.